0: On a clear day, rise and look around you, and you'll see who you are. On a clear day, how it will astound you that the glow of your being outshines every star. You'll feel Sure. you can hear from far and near a world you've never heard before
1: Tierney Sutton is an artist who holds honesty and integrity at the core of her music and her life. Splitting her time between Paris and L.A., she straddles the line between tradition and innovation. With her band, pianist Christian Jacob, bassist Trey Henry, and drummer Ray Brinker, they have been performing and recording together for nearly 25 years. From her LA home, she shared with me working on her album Screenplay, recording with her hero, the legendary vocalist Al Jarreau, and what she's got brewing creatively for this coming year. Please enjoy this conversation with Tierney Sutton. hi welcome to the playful musician i'm your host steve davidson each week i sit down with musicians from all different paths from composers to conductors percussionists to piccolo players to tease out their strategies practice habits tips tools tricks routines and how they keep all of it playful the playful musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician how they got to where they are what motivates and inspires them and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Tierney, welcome! Thanks so much for being on the Playful Musician. It's such a joy to have you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's really great to be a part of this. Oh. I see a lot of the people that you've <laughs> you've been talking to, and uh, you know, it's cool. Very cool. It,
1: yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's it's certainly uh, inspiring for me to talk to all these all you wonderful musicians and artists and so you're you're in Los Angeles is that correct
2: Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles, but I'm um, married to a Parisian, so I just got back from Paris. Oh, um, and I was there for six weeks. So
1: wow, that sounds lovely.
2: <laughs> it's it's not bad. It's not a bad thing.
1: Yeah, how was Paris?
2: It was cold and rainy. (laughs) It was. It was like, uh, yeah, I was there for six weeks. I was there from uh, just a little bit towards the end, uh, a little bit after the middle of May until Mm -hmm. uh, the beginning of July. And for the first solid two weeks, it was like 50 degrees and raining. I had to Mm. go out and get boots because... (laughs) I like to walk in Paris and it was just too wet, but it's cool. It's still, it's, you know, it's Paris. So I accept rain when it's Paris, (laughs) but my husband, you know, he, he spent most of the winter here. Uh, he came, uh, New Year's Eve and was here through, through the end of March. And he was like, Oh, we're having lunch on the patio all of February really? <laughs> he said, this is not bad. This is not Ray. a good thing. And I said, yeah, yeah, you, you you have Paris, but we got the weather. So
1: you got the awesome weather. Yeah.
2: And you're in, you're in Oregon.
1: I am. I'm okay. in Southern Oregon. I'm right on the border of California and Oregon, a little mountain town called Ashland.
2: That's beautiful. Yeah. And I've heard of Ashland, Oregon. I think I played there once. I think, I'm not really? sure. Really? Yeah. I think. But a sh- maybe there's a
1: Shakespeare festival here. That's kind of what we're known for. Mm-hmm. Steve Smith lives here.
2: <laughs> right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed he's, oh, I'm a big fan. Yeah. He, he, uh, I met him in New York when I was there doing my Joni Mitchell project with Peter oh, cool. Erskine. Steve and his wife came to the show and um, yeah, it was really great to meet him. He's wonderful.
1: Yeah. He's a phenomenal person and amazing artists it's fun to run into him at the grocery store
2: yeah yeah no i know he's part-time in new york but that part-time there that's yeah yeah i mean i think that's that's when you get to a certain age and you've traveled a lot it's kind of it's kind of nice to have places one one of which is bucolic and one of which is acidified yeah
1: were things opening up in paris or is it still pretty closed down
2: um Things were pretty open. Uh, we went to a couple. We went to two concerts, but you had to ma- have masks on in the concerts, and 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 that was pretty uncomfortable. Just mm. in terms of the, one of them was pretty muggy. But oh, yeah, it was okay. It, 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 you know, they're they're starting to open up. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 tricky there because, the the cafe culture is such a huge thing that the actually the day i arrived or shortly after i arrived i think or maybe it wasn't until june i don't remember it all Blurred the other <laughs> the pandemic restrictions and they're they're easing up but there was one day when i was there and i think it was right after i arrived that they they said okay now no restrictions on um on uh outdoor cafe dining which was mm. huge for them <laughs> Um, because, you know, when that isn't happening, just a big part of the culture goes away. So everybody was packed into the, um, the outdoor cafes and they had actually added space, uh, next to each street cafe, like a, like double the volume, you know, more, you know, double the volume into where you walk into everything to give, to give the cafes a chance to Make up for all the lost time. sure and And the other thing is that was really, really sweet, speaking of play, <laughs> is um watching them when I was walking around on an average Saturday, watch the the soccer matches ah. at the cafe, sitting outside, <laughs> packed together in a cafe with a huge, you know widescreen TV setup. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the cafe is sitting maybe smoking, maybe having a, a cup of coffee, maybe having some wine, who knows. Yeah. And they're and they're they're watching the soccer game and cheering as one voice when <laughs> the French do well. I mean, they eventually got nicked, but they did pretty yeah. well. They, they went pretty <laughs> far. So, how fun. Yeah, it was it was great.
1: And are venues or things going to open up in Los Angeles soon?
2: Well, I just went to a show uh, two nights ago, um, which mm. was, and it was weird because it was the, it was the reopening of Feinstein's at Fatellos, Michael Feinstein's club. Mm-hmm. And it was Michael doing it, doing a, a show there. Uh, the show was sold out and I went with my dear friend, Alan Bergman, the lyricist who's 95 and right before, and it was, it was kind of uncomfortable because the COVID mm. numbers are going up now. I mean, in you know, Alan's fully vaccinated and so am yeah. I, but even so you go in there and he's such a treasure. Everybody wants to come and kiss him and touch sure. him and take a picture with him and everything. So it was, it was kind of stressful to sit there and try to <laughs> be like, uh, mm, maybe right. another time. Yeah. Take a step it,
1: back, please.
2: Right. But yeah, it's just such a strange, a strange time that we're going through. I mean, we're, we're really gonna think about this. You know, mm-hmm. but I, I think one of the things that's been interesting for me is that you know, they say social distancing. And I don't think it's social distancing. It's physical distancing. physical distancing. Yeah. So because for example, i'm I'm having this conversation with you and I'm right. getting to know you. We're getting to know each other and and in a in a kind of an intimate way mm-hmm. um, that we probably wouldn't have done pre-pandemic unless I was doing a gig up there. And I, you know, right. so developing these technologies, I think has created a kind of intimacy between people that that's really powerful. I've been involved in a a racial justice space and you know, it's just, it's really kind of, I always think it's, it's not social distancing. It's so it could be, you can get socially closer but you're just physically yeah, not physically.
1: close. Tell me more about the, this racial justice thing you're involved in, if you don't mind.
2: Um, sure. Uh, well, uh, I'm a Baha'i, and um, in the Baha'i community, there's been a lot of emphasis really since the turn of the last century, since mm. the early 1900s, on um, the unity between black and white in America being the most vital and challenging issue which um, I think a lot of people are starting to realize how, how mm. formative that issue is and how cleaning out that um, festering boil, yeah. <laughs> that patent evil as the Baha'i writings call it, mm. um, that, that, that cleaning that out and really looking with truthfulness on how we got here and meditating on the oneness of mankind and figuring out if we really believe it or if we've been saying we believe it and all the things that are going on that don't seem to to uh, support the oneness of mankind. or like, oh yeah, well, that's uh, that's not my problem. Right. You know, I, I say good things at the dinner table. I, right. I taught my children not to say those words, which I don't know, for me now, it's just like, wow, that so has nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It so has nothing to do with it, you know? Right, yep, exactly. So I, I had been having a space at my house, a space, a real actual space, a physical space, <laughs> that a, a Baha'i friend of mine and I uh, hosted for several years before the pandemic. Mm. I was basically talking about racism in America, sharing some of the Baha'i writings that that talk about it and talk in kind of terms of love and balance that I think are not really present in the dialogue that much. Mm. And that being the case, we... Um, we would, we would study those writings, but then we would also study historical stuff. Mm. And my friend uh, who's black who was, was the first person that kind of over the period of those years preceding the, the pandemic was kind of gently saying to me, you, you realize Tierney that this is systemic stuff. This is stuff that's kind of baked into the cake yeah. Because I still was kind of in that mindset of like, well, what this really is, is we all have to be nicer. And yes, there was an element of that, but the yeah. extent to which we have to be nicer is a different thing than I understood. Um, mm. I was giving a, a talk a, a couple of weeks ago from Paris and the title was Radical Virtue. Like mm. we think that... That we have to be nicer, but but what are what's the definition of really being a decent human being? And so, from the Baha'i perspective, one one thing that's really important is the Baha'i writings say that truthfulness is the foundation of all virtues, and no other virtue can really take hold in a person without truthfulness. Hmm. So, if that's your and so so that frames like where are we, you know, if that's, so that's a radical virtue. Like that, if if you knew that if I'm not honest, everything else is out the window. Right. Um, and then there's a, a really incredible passage that says, that tells the American Baha'is that they have to deal with this issue and they have to root out racism within themselves. And it specifically tells the white, Baha'is, this is 1938, specifically mm. tells the white Baha'is that they have a usually inherent and at times subconscious sense of superiority. <laughs> Sound familiar?
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
2: And, you know, at times subconscious, you know, yeah. but usually inherent, yeah, it's pretty much there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's a reason that it's there. Um, and, then, uh, and then it talks about um, needing to overcome uh, the tendency to be patronizing and all of this kind of stuff I mean it just nailed everything that we're dealing with right now yeah And so to be in spaces where to be in places where people are reading those things but but in the end it says let neither white or black think that anything short of genuine love, extreme patience, true humility, hmm. consummate tact, Mature wisdom, sound initiative, and deliberate, persistent, and prayerful effort can succeed in washing away the stain that this patent evil has left on the name of their common country. I think I got it mostly right. Yeah, I got the virtues, the, the seven virtues. So, so to think about like what it is to be a good person, I think we think, oh yeah, you know, I try not to lie too much. Right. And I kind of, but as the the Baha'i writing set it out, they're like, okay, the only thing that's going to cure this is you guys upping your spiritual and moral game so hard, yeah. like in a way that you haven't. And so when you frame it that way of like, oh, I have to be scrupulously honest. <laughs> I can't cheat on my taxes. Like, I, I mean, like literally it yeah. goes to that. It's like, you can't be an untrustworthy person and expect that this issue is going to be cured and look at what's going on now with, you know, the vaccine stuff and all the rest of it, the the lack of unity and trust between people mm. because people have acted in a non-trustworthy way in such a profound way for such a long time, you can't blame people for being like, I don't buy any of it. And so to rebuild yeah. that, there's no path except genuine love, extreme patience, true humility, consummate tech. There's no path. There's right. no easy, there's no like one Easy day. button. <laughs> exactly. There's no easy button. It's like, uh, I, you know, I believe in the oneness of mankind. I believe that all people are one. And we know scientifically this is a fact. We, all, we also know that race doesn't even exist and is, is a non-thing in, you know, DNA and all of these things. It's like right. not even a thing. It's like not even real. And at the same time.
1: Right. here it We is. have to deal
2: with it. So it's, yeah. it's this big paradigm, but it's been a, a big, a profound joy mm. for me to, to spend this period kind of deepening my relationships with people and creating, um, honest and productive, uh, dialogue about this that isn't, isn't about pounding anybody into the ground, but also mm. isn't in, isn't about telling any lies. Right you know, yeah, and so to create that balance, I think, is the real tricky thing. and that is you tricky. know, but that brings us to to music because I mm. think, you know the the metaphor of what jazz is and how jazz traditionally works, and I think how all music works at its highest level, is the way the consultation about these issues should work. You know, we should mm. we the the best musical ensembles have a give and take, have a, a, a telepathic unity, have a, have a real feeling of what the strengths of each person is mm-hmm. and wanting to empower every person and knowing that if, if someone is, is dominated in a way that, that doesn't give them their full beauty and voice, the entire whole is, is suffering. Yeah. And so having that kind of idea of serving the music or serving the ensemble I think is it, it's been really helpful for me because as we talk about what are the principles that create good um, problem-solving among mm-hmm. people, it is amongst musicians that I've seen uh, the, the highest and most elegant levels of success in this often. Yeah. You know?
1: And really good music is, is honest.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: You have to be, I mean, in my experience, you have to be totally vulnerable and honest. Right. You can't put on a
2: face. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, it just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't land, isn't the same.
2: No, no. Yeah. That's really true.
1: Yeah. Wasn't your father a, a A race, like he dealt, he was an attorney, right? And dealt with racial issues. He was a civil rights attorney.
2: He was a civil rights attorney in Milwaukee, which um, people are starting to understand, you know, that often uh, history uh, that talks about racism in America, you know, concentrates on Mississippi and, you know,
3: Alabama. Alabama, But,
2: but, you know, kids, we got to stop that because that's just not the history. And growing up, I, I knew that.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and so my dad was sort of in the trenches and he was, um, I remember him many, many times suing the Milwaukee police department on behalf of the family of a young black man who had been arrested and hung himself in police custody, oh. like for no reason, you know, yeah. like, come on guys, what really happened? And so those things happened so so commonly, and um, so I, I grew up with a with a kind of very uh, non-conventional view of um, authority, police, mm-hmm. everything really. but but it wasn't really until I have to say, until the le- last, say, five years that I realized why my father was as constantly agitated as he was. Mm. Um, because he was constantly agitated and constantly angry. And when he would see certain people on TV who were part of the sort of authority structure that he knew were um, harming people who didn't have the capacity to fight back, he would clench his teeth in this way and say that... Someday it will come out how evil that man is and how mm. bad that is what he's doing. Yeah. Tyranny. That man is a terrible person and he's doing terrible things. Now, from the Baha'i perspective, extreme virtue means you you can't backbite about people. Right. You have to look at the situation. So I can't I can't deal with it the way that he dealt with it. Sure. I have to I have to figure out some other way to deal with it. Because I I do think that the it's so easy to just relax and start feeling, you know, super um, relax and start feeling super above everything, and find find the villain, right? You know, find the villain. But I think the problem is that if if the oneness of mankind is right, if as Bahá'u'lláh, the Prophet Founder of the Baha'i Faith, said. The reality is that the earth and our systems are like one body. And if part of it is ill, the other part is ill too. Yeah. Then we are in this together. And we we have on some level been complicit, been a part of this. And so it, it isn't helpful right. as as satisfying as it is to grit your teeth and start... Right,
3: saying, vilify
2: That's, someone. Vilify someone. That's not an extreme virtue. <laughs> That's what everybody wants to do. Yeah you know and even among ourselves like it's it's really it's it's been frustrating for me to see you know the sort of woke white people attacking each other <laughs> hammer and tongs and it's like what 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 do you think is being accomplished by this do right. we want to solve the problem or do we want to feel self-righteous right. that that we found someone that's worse than us that we can attack <laughs> right. but again it goes back to like what were the virtues we learned when we were five years old, what are the virtues that make good music? What are the principles that we, that make things work? Yeah. Can we, can we agree on some of those and see where some of these things don't work very well? You know? Yeah.
1: From her album, the sting variations. Here's the track synchronicity one. Past year been for you creatively
2: it's been weird <laughs> is, is the answer to that question it's been weird but it's you know um, my my saving grace of the last year creatively uh, was working with Tamir Hendelman wonderful pianist he's in the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra has mm-hmm. his own trio he's just a, uh, a wonderful uh, Israeli genius boy mm-hmm powerhouse, never sits still for 20 seconds. (laughs) He's amazing. And he was one of these people, um, kind of like of the Emmett Cohn school, in a sense of just going, okay, pandemic's going, what can I do? You know, he's a guy that has like seven gigs every every day, pretty much, <laughs> right. with four different projects. You know, we did our first live concert up in the Redwoods last weekend. And it was, oh, wow. he, had, he had two before and one after. And, you know, he was meeting, you know, he, he wasn't on my flights. He had, he had things on either side. <laughs> but anyway, Tamir started right away, I think, I think by April or even March or by April, like, you know, within weeks of everything shutting down.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He started live streaming, a solo piano concert from his living room every Saturday and he did it throughout and he would just you know send out his email list charge to buy tickets his wife set up the stuff you know mm-hmm. he worked on getting sound getting getting everything as good as he could get it and by the summer he asked if I wanted to do a duo concert with him because we had been doing a bunch of duo things anyway
3: mm-hmm.
2: And so we, I, I, went and did a couple of of live ones with him. I did. We ended up doing five or six of them in the end. And um, we we were we did one in December that that was the seasons of Johnny Mercer. All the all the Johnny Mercer lyrics that mm. have to do with uh, the seasons. Like um, people may not be aware that Johnny Mercer wrote the lyric for Once Upon a Summertime. Mm. Once upon a summertime, if you recall, we
1: uh,
2: walked beside a little flower stall. You know, just beautiful, beautiful. And great for me because I'm in Paris all the time. So. Right. Um, anyway, so that's, that's a beautiful one. So the, he's got references to summer, um, autumn, great autumn songs. He wrote the lyrics for Autumn Leaves, mm-hmm. Early Autumn. And then he even wrote a song with, um, after his death, his widow gave one of his melodies to um, to Barry Manilow, who mm. wrote a, a really honorably beautiful melody of, to a song called When October Goes. Hmm. And so, um, anyway, so we did these this series of concerts, which was, you know, in terms of the technology of it and everything else was just crazy. Um, and for the first two, when we ended them, I'm like, I'm never doing this again. This is just the biggest nightmare I've ever experienced in my life. I hate it, I'm not gonna do this. But then by the last one, it was, it was fine and, and, and lovely. It's just so strange. You have to get used to not having live people there, which mm. is not the biggest deal for me, except if I'm worried that the sound isn't getting to them properly, then I freak out. Mm. You know, if right, I, if I feel like something, be, yeah, if, if, if I feel like that's not, so anyway, we, we did kind of figure that out. And we also did, uh, a series, um, uh, of by request videos that people bought from us, mm. you know, we like, we couldn't go do a concert. We can't go play for their 50th wedding anniversary, but we'll make you a video with, with studio quality audio. Give us a request. Oh, wow. Of a song. And this turned out to be actually really cool because there was one guy who ordered one for his wife for Valentine's Day and loved it so much that he asked us to do another one for his teacher who was in hospice.
3: Uh.
2: And it was this specific song... Uh, Jimmy Buffett song that I had never sung, but it was very lovely. It was called "Breathe In, Breathe Out, Move On," and it was her favorite song. And so we put together a, 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 a and cool arrangement of it and performed it for her. And we got the most wonderful letter from her. So
0: mm.
2: there were some. So again, it's this thing of we're physically far but we're not really socially distant. So there's been this sort of intimacy of the stuff that I've done over this, this year that was greater because of the pandemic. There was something really like, Mm -hmm. you know, figuring out a way to really connect with people and, and be friends with them. And right. So
1: that's awesome
2: so Tamir and I are getting ready to record an album and oh, okay. and um but then I also have an album that was finished well it's not finished yet it's uh my husband is a wonderful guitar player and we made an album in 2013 2014 called Paris Sessions with mm-hmm. Kevin Axton on bass and it's just beautiful bosses some of right. Serge's compositions and stuff and we did a Paris Sessions 2 and Hubert Laws is is playing on some of the tracks, um, which is really exciting because we have a wonderful thing that we we love to do together. So that's something else. But because of the pandemic, Hubert has been doing his things separately, and he's not finished yet. Um, and um, but we we went in the studio, Serge and Kevin, and I went in the studio to to get the basic stuff done on that. So there's. It's been strange. It's just been strange because in my band, for example, our, usually our impetus is we go on the road, we're at a sound check and we play around with stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and, and the band did one, one streaming, uh, show from the Wallace Annenberg here. Oh, really? Which was, which was nice. There were some technical difficulties, (laughs) but it, it was nice. So it's, you know, and, and it was recorded. So, right. But it's been strange.
1: Yeah. So you got two albums maybe coming out this year?
2: Yeah. Uh I don't think either one will be out this year. I okay. think they'll both I think they'll both be out in uh twenty twenty two.
1: Okay. And your last album was the all the movie songs, right? Right.
2: Screenplay.
1: Screenplay.
2: Yeah, that's 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 what we do. We create a title for our record that is just Clever, too clever by a hundred percent. Like, and that, this was our latest one. That's what we like to do. Um, So for example, I'll give you, I'll give you the perfect example. You know, we, we, and we, we slaved. And I remember when I finally, it was me. It's my fault. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we always want there to be like a, a, something. Yeah. Something double entendre. Something that says something that's a little bit more, but like, Hey, your podcast okay uh-huh. has the word play in it right. and you couldn't remember the freaking title so right there that tells me right there what a loser i am at this but anyway in my mind it was the no, perfect it's just that title
1: I'm, it's no no no, 50 no it's 50 year old brain is what
2: it is. i can't sweetie, remember it's not you at things. all nobody can everybody <laughs> says everybody says uh what is it uh uh, not screenplay, they say, they say, soundtrack. Soundtrack. Say, oh, you have the soundtrack, you know, <laughs> I mean, so you gotta, you can't, but I live, in, yeah. we live in, in, in California. Sure. We live in LA. We live and in so in we all We've all played in a bunch of movies and we, we were, you know, we did. Um, Sully. The soundtrack for Sully and, you know, I'm uh, in touch with, with Clint a lot and all the rest of it. And, and so because we have wor- worked on soundtracks and everything, and we thought, okay, this is a bunch of songs from movies. Do we want to call it like, you know, film music or, you know, going to the movies or, you know, we're like, no, that's not us. We can't do that. We can't do that. So we, we went around and around and around. Like we do about everything. We do, this about our music. We do this about our business. We do this about the title and we went around and around and around. Mm. And then I remember one day I was meditating. I was like screenplay. That's perfect.
1: Mm. And it is perfect. Yeah, it is it's It's just
2: useless. Because nobody can remember It's not memorable. But, <laughs> no, it's not memorable. It just falls right out of your head. And so it was just too clever by half. And that anyway. Yeah. But anyway, it, the album is called Screenplay. Yes. And um and um I love the you know,
1: the grease cuts are my favorites. <laughs>
2: And you know, what's funny about that is that I almost put the kibosh on those. I remember, oh yeah. And I almost was like, I just can't, I just, but it's so funny because when we, when we went about doing that album, we did it a little different, you know, in, in the past, we've kind of like usually locked ourselves in rooms and just. Hashed things out together. One mm-hmm. person might have a little germ of an idea, but we would we would do the 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 stuff collaboratively. Mm-hmm. We've done that on over a hundred arrangements that we've done together sure. in you know ten albums. So, but then when we did the Sting album, uh, basically Trey Henry did all the arranging with one or two exceptions. He okay. just did he he just just did it, and he's a great arranger, and it was really cool. And we did our TSB process on them. I mean, we put them through our little filter, but. It, they're they're his arrangements, really, mm. and um one Christian did one of um, fields of gold, which is really nice, yeah, but gorgeous. it's basically but it's basically the rest of them are altres. and so for screenplay, we decided we would give each person in the band a couple of things to work on, all right, so I had a few things like you know, windmills of your mind. I knew what I wanted to do on that already. Mm. Um, and I knew the guys would love it because it's the weirdest possible time signature kind of weirdness (laughs) that they love. And, um, and, and then, so then there was this, this moment where people were just saying, okay, what do you, what do you want to do? And I remember it was, it was, it was Christmas and I get this letter. We get this email from Christian and he's like, I'm thinking I might want to do Greece. And I was like, who are you and what have you done with Christian Jacob? Because this is not the Christian Jacob I know because Christian is like a jazz guy. He's right. not familiar with American culture. It's like usually, you know, even when I did the Joni stuff, you know, he was like, I don't know this music. It's not my scene, you know, mm-hmm. and I understand that now that I'm married to somebody French who's a jazzer. It's just like, it's like, a, so I was like,
1: not in consciousness.
2: why of all people? Does Christian want to do songs from Greece? But then, then he, then he said, and he, actually did four. But um, one of them got did get the axe, and that was the um, Summer Lovin'. Oh yeah, because because you know what? This. I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm actually fine with Baby It's Cold Outside. I'm like I'm good with that. I don't really think that he's giving her Rehabsol. I really don't. I, I actually, I think it's just two people that kind of want to stay over and do it. Want an excuse. Okay. So I think people need to just shut up. And so I'm not, I'm not the police about this stuff, but in defense of those people, Summer Lovin is a little rapey because you know, there's, there's actually a line that says, did she put up a fight? Okay. That's not funny. When you get to that, it's kinda not, I don't know. Yeah. And because it was a duet, I you know figuring out a way to, I was, and I was just like, you know what? I no, this one's gotta go. And I didn't want there to be four songs from Greece on this, no, <laughs> no. So anyway, so we just, or three. So there's just the two mm. uh, and, and they're great. They're fun. And I, and I, and I love them and it's, and it's funny that I was resistant because I used to listen to those, Olivia Newton-John. Newton John. <laughs> I mean, before I knew anything about jazz, I listened to that stuff right. as a kid. So, yeah, yeah, but they're great. They're really fun.
1: How do you? What's the process of the band for picking the tunes? I'm really curious about that. Like all your albums, like how? Who picks the theme? Do you pick the theme, and then you're off and running and trying to find songs to fit the theme, or how does it work? That
2: I would say. Ninety percent of the time, it, it's me that ends up picking the theme. Although the themes do kind of arise out of certain things, mm-hmm. you know. Like we'll start. It's really funny if people if people are like Stone Crazy, Tierney Sutton band fans, they might notice that usually there's one song on an album that that it is related to the theme of the next album Mm
3: -hmm.
2: or yeah, or, or there's, there's often, um, you know, this kind of like, uh, you know, idea that, that, you know, in, that there, something's kind of percolating and realizing, oh, that song that could, that's a whole, there's a whole vein from that Mm. idea. Like, um, which, which album did you, yeah, You Are My Sunshine, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, You Are My Sunshine, We this is part of our Too Clever by Half. <laughs> that album is an album of all happy songs, and we did two different versions of the song. So like the first two songs, tracks on the album are um, uh, Get Happy and Happy Days Are Here Again, mm-hmm. and the last two songs on the album are Get Happy and Happy Days Are Here Again, but divergent Absolutely different um, arrangements, arrangements of them yeah. that make them, you know. And then in the in the middle, glad to be happy, um, uh, happy talk, all of these happy songs. And then in the central is is haunted heart because the, the the idea of that album was um, the pursuit of happiness, and that there's a kind of core of melancholy in the American demand that everybody be happy all the mm-hmm. time. And so the very first song is get happy, but it's a dirge. It's like really dark. It's right. like the darkest yeah, get happy anyone's that. ever yeah. gonna, you know, with this like dark, dark thing. And so it's like, yeah, get happy, be happy. Everybody's <laughs> happy, you know? And, you know, thinking about what we were talking about before, like yeah. with the whole racial history of this this country, the whole, we're the home of the free, and the, you know, the home of the brave. We're, we're the most just wonderful place in the world. Let's not talk about the fact that the Nazis studied us to figure out what to do, but, but we're the best. <laughs> right. We're Everything's really good. Isn't it great here? You know? And um, meanwhile, you know, you're your dad was burned out of his neighborhood yeah. and, you know, and, and refused attendance at, at the school that your dad went to or whatever. Mm. So, so that whole sort of like skippy, happy, peppy American optimism is something that's always irked me. <laughs> and so that's what the record's about. Right. So how do you say that? You know, I remember when we were touring that record, we, um, We, we, we were on a, like a morning, a morning New York show or something, you know, where we had, and this guy, it might've been Florida, it was either New York or Florida. This guy comes out and he's like, you know, the whitest teeth (laughs) in America and he walks out and he's like, so Tierney, safe to say you were happy when you were making this record? (laughs) I was like, this is a guy that has not listened to the record. Doesn't know anything about me. (laughs) and has no idea what he's talking about but that's okay you know yeah. so in terms of the the themes usually they're mine and usually i just want to have a reason you know yeah. i think i think um you know the band all everybody in the band is kind of um pretty thoughtful mm-hmm. uh they're pretty they're the guys are unbelievably smart like i can't i can't tell you which one is the smartest because they're all really smart <laughs> people and and they're they're consequently they're also really funny mm-hmm. they're also really funny so but 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 when they when they come up with something and when we come up with something as a band we i think there's a kind of for me, as a singer, that's singing lyrics and telling a story. There has to be an internal story that that that's true. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, you know, it's got to be truthful. Yeah. And in order to have that with an unusual, um, an unusual arrangement of something, and for a lot of these songs, there's no point in doing them <laughs> if there's not something added right. to what the story has been. There's just no point. Like, what good does it do me? to do Ella Fitzgerald's arrangement of Blue Skies. <laughs> right. Like, that's that's not going to look good for me. That's not a good look. I don't well, want that Well, it's already A-B been comparison. done. Why would
1: you?
2: Well, it's already been done to a level that I will <laughs> never attain. So, like, why do I want someone to A-B in their ears, my version and Ella's version? Sure. I do not. I yeah. want whatever I do to take it as far away from that as possible so that I won't look like a doof. So... <laughs> You know, so for all of us, when you, when you create Mm -hmm. something, um, I have to have a reason to be standing in the song with the, with the, the subtext, which is the arrangement. Mm -hmm. The, the, you know, the arrangement is kind of like the underscore of the story that you're telling. Right. And, and it's got to make sense emotionally. Um, and so the themes really help me get deep into the songs in a different way mm. when I know what the themes are. Um, and so for, for On the Other Side, that, that record is called On the Other Side. Why we did that, I'll, I'll never know. That wasn't my fault. but um, <laughs> But we just decided that On the Other Side, you know, like that we didn't wanna call it the happy record, but actually we should have called it like Meditation on Happy or something <laughs> like that to just tell people what the record actually is.
1: Right, aren't like you happy?
2: Always, yeah, yeah, aren't you happy? Are you happy yet? Are
1: you happy now?
2: Are we happy now? Right. Are we happy yet? Happy, happy. Right. Yes, skippy, happy, peppy. Um, yeah, That's so but yeah. So it, I think we, it, it's usually me, but it's but it's also a band process right. because we'll, we'll do stuff and, and, and certainly people will say, well, how about this? And how about that? but you know we have to all agree that we're excited about it so like the bill evans record i remember we we all were excited about it and you know the the sting record um, ray and i were both listening to sting's musical the last, the last ship. ship yeah it, oh man beautiful. that's such a beautiful beautiful project yeah. and we were we were both at the same time kind of obsessed with it and uh, and yet it was um, Trey that said, "You know, I want to just do the arrangements on this." And so mm. even though, so you know, there's usually some synchronicity of, of stuff coming through the band, but then theres then everybody sort of hops on it and it's really it's really fun yeah. to, to have that. So I, I think that's when we talk about like extreme virtue, There's one that isn't really extreme, but I think it's extreme in the world because it doesn't exist. And that virtue is the virtue of detachment, Mm -hmm. (laughs) meaning that you change your mind when new information comes. And I think that's one of the main uh, holes in in the world right now, basically, is people aren't going into something with a sense of humility of saying, not really sure. I have some thoughts about this. What do you think? How can we solve this problem? They're going, okay, who can I demonize? How can I promote my idea that I'm so fixed on that, that you will never change it. Right. And, and I, I, can't even see anything that doesn't support what I already think. Right. Um, and because of that, the, the band process, I've really become this Huge proponent of that as a virtue that that we need to develop. So, if I think of all the times that I had an idea about a song or a concept or whatever, and brought it to the band, and then that got batted around and became something entirely new. Now we're at a place where we're so detached when we bring stuff, and it's it's a pleasure. And we Mm. know when we've gotten it to a place where it's us, and not us playing somebody's idea Mm -hmm. but it's also such a fragile thing it's like respecting everybody um one of our rules as a band is you know say uh christian or ray or trey or or kevin one of us has an idea of an arrangement so you spend some time you write out your idea you you bring it to the band we play it and everyone's like no i don't really like it now the person who had the idea has the right to say it, it hasn't been executed well enough to be what I imagined it to be. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing, right. you know? Yeah. And so it's like it, we respect each other to, to, enough to know, okay, so let's, let's make sure we do this to its highest degree of excellence before we decide whether, whether it works for us or not. And the other thing is that really most of the time when an idea is on the table, and this is explicit in directions of Baha'i consultation, that idea, we don't keep referring to it as Tierney's idea or Ray's idea or whatever, it's an idea. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, let's go into 5-4 in the bridge or whatever. Does that work? Does that not work? Nobody says, that was a stupid idea, Tierney. <laughs> it's like, it's an idea, you are trying it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's not my my worth as a human being. It isn't tied up in it is not tied up in whether the guys like it or whether it sounds good it's just an idea <laughs> right. and I think we just like don't have that at all in our culture it's yeah. just like not a thing it's like holding on to the idea till the death of everybody
1: yeah well and there's a there's a interpersonal aspect of that that I find too where I have an idea right I, I like like I want to do whatever it is. I want to write a song or I want to take a trip or I want to do a project. And then I get, my mind can get fixated on the end result. Like, you know, it has to be a certain way. And one of my teachers mimicked what you just said, which is it's not the plan. Like, and I get really detailed. I I can write a detailed plan and it's like, Oh, this is a great plan. This plan is going to work. But, what she said to me was the plan is only to get you moving and get you on the path because you're going to be on this path and you're going to experience other things that you wouldn't have if you hadn't made a plan and started going down the path. And then you're getting new information, as you just said, that then can change the outcome from what you originally saw. But it's, I find personally, it can be very hard to let go of that like, oh, I want to do
2: this. (laughs) Right, right, right. And it's, it's, it's cool. I think that's one of the cool things that the the band uh, has, has enjoyed is that we have the band process, which is, you know, we're incorporated, they're partners. Mm -hmm. So if I, if we accept a gig, we accept the gig, we decide that that's you know, that's okay. Uh, I'm not even the chief financial officer. Some, you know, Ray writes me a check, (laughs) you know, I'm a part of the the corporation and that's from my dad. That's because my dad, my dad had that kind of philosophy and consequently his legal secretary had a percentage of his law firm and all the other legal secretaries were really annoyed because she didn't have to wear anything particular. She could wear jeans. She could come in at noon. She just had to do her job and he respected her, mm. and so consequently, she was with him for 45 years, wow. so, like that. But, um, but, and they're not my secretaries, they're my partners, yeah. and and I, I knew early on, um, I knew early on that they were, frankly, better, more skilled musicians than I was, and that if I was gonna be smart at all, I would really try to empower them as much as possible, mm. because the more empowered everybody in the unit is the more they feel that they're able to do their best work in this project the more invested they're going to be Mm -hmm. there's just no there's no excuse there's no uh shortcut for that yeah and um and it is about creating a healthy process it's just about creating a healthy process and being somewhat detached about the result Mm -hmm. because Man, result. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. it just like okay, let's, uh, let's see what happens. You know, let's let's see what happens. And well, and think about what is improvisational music. Improvisational music is creating a process that is adjustable, right. that is happening in the moment that you did not plan right. to the and think. So, if if your life doesn't work like that at all. And, and, but of course you try to do your preparation work. You do your due diligence before you play. I have to memorize all the words. I have to know this song so well that when the guys decide that they want to do it in seven, four, I'm not going (laughs) to freak out, you know, or Christian puts a real seriously weird reharm. Like I know it well enough to figure out what he's why this can work. Mm -hmm. You know, if I don't really know it and I'm always used to it with those chords. So part of it is, is being strong in what you can do. But the other big part of it is, is being able to release your preconceptions Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah.
1: From the album, The Paris Sessions, here's Tierney singing Estate. Estate.
0: and they're perfect.
1: consider yourself the leader of the group
2: uh kind of kind of <laughs> i mean
1: um i mean it is your band the tyranny sutton yeah, band
2: <laughs> it is the Tierney sutton band yeah it is it is um i i would i would say yes but with a big asterisk you know mm-hmm. like uh you know, the Dave Matthews band and, uh, you know, Pat Matheny group yeah. or whatever, all those kinds of, I'm sure that they don't have the kind of financial setup that I have with my band. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get a little bit of a leader's fee, but basically we yeah. we chop things right. up and in, an, in an even way. And, and honestly, in the case of all of us, We take a pay cut usually when we work with the band, all of us, because if I, if I'm a, if I'm a solo performer or I do a gig with Tamir, I get hired to go do a gig with a a symphony or, you know, whatever, a a jazz Mm -hmm. band somewhere, I'm going to make much more than I would with the TSB Mm -hmm. because I want to, I want to pay the guys You know, I I mean, and I'm not really paying them. I, I, we, you know, I, I, it's, it doesn't feel fair to me in terms of what they, they give to it, but there are certain things that are true in the sense of, I'm the one that's talking to the audience. Right. And so. You're the
1: front man, front woman. I'm the
2: front person. Yeah. I'm the front person. And, um, and. In terms of like putting the set together, we do that together, but I sort of have a, a little more weight.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I, I, we we all have veto power because we have so much material that there's no reason that this absolutely has to be here in this place and all right. the rest of it. Um, and and to be specific about that, and I think musicians will understand this when you when you go to a venue to do a show. There's so many different factors. Yep. There's what kind of piano is in the venue, which it could be in. The, in you know, if you're in Europe, it's usually going to be pretty good. But here, sometimes it's really great. Sometimes it's not so great. Often it's somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Um, Christian is really is um, brilliant and unbelievable at what he does, um, and he is affected by what the what the piano the is, and so. Yeah he will say, okay, this piano has is voiced in a really weird way. Let's not do that thing with the pedal point where I'm playing this, or, you know, we probably wanna stay away from certain ballad things because of the way this piano is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then other times he'll be like, oh, we can do anything. You know, so, because this is just, this piano is great. Sometimes the acoustics in the hall are specifically uh, wonderful or limited mm-hmm. in, in a different way. Uh, and it's true of the drums and everything else. So everybody uh, sits down and looks at that set list and, and thinks about how that's going to feel to them to go to that song, to that song, that song, to that song, that song. And we always do a different set every time we play. It's just kind of a band credo. So if we're touring a project, we're going to do a lot of the same stuff, but there's always going to be some weird stuff mm-hmm. stuck in that we never did quite that way before. Yeah, Because we want to keep it not to be a rote, You know, we're not, not really, I mean, we did, when we toured the Sting album, we sort of did shows for a while and, and, and sometimes we do, but we try traditionally to, to retain a certain, um, improvisational quality to whatever it is we're doing. And, um, that's, that's really, uh, really, really helpful. I
1: bet. I bet how I mean this is seems a little unusual that you could have a band together for this long
2: I think I think in terms of uh, I think we're we're pretty singular you know I'm yeah. thinking about like uh, I, I don't I don't think that there's any anything else out there with the same... Uh, personnel for 25 plus years. I, yeah, I mean we've really been the same 20. Uh, I mean Manhattan Transfer might come close, 30. but
1: they, but people have
2: passed right. away yeah. or
1: whatever. But yeah,
2: well, and 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 Manhattan Transfer, uh, yeah, Manhattan Transfer that that would come close, and probably New York Voices too. Yeah. Those guys have been around for a long time. Uh, Turtle Island Quartet was for a long time, and then Mark Mark. Uh, Retired from the group. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of little differences there, in, in the, in the um, but you know, for us, we're a uh, we're a um, a federated unit. <laughs> I mean, like uh, new, um, those groups that you were talking about before. Well, except Turtle Island, but they 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 had different members. Sure, a lot of different. Yeah, yeah. They had two core members yep. and a whole bunch of different ones. We've had the, the same. same five.
1: That's amazing.
2: Uh, we have two. <laughs> Two bass players, because in the, when I started to tour a lot, Trey was raising a family and busy in the studios in L.A. And we had already done a couple of gigs with Kevin Axt And so uh, Kevin started to do most of our, um, our uh, um, road stuff. Mm-hmm. And then all the albums that we made after 2004 had both of the bassists on the albums even though most of the songs were just one bass player, but some of them would be two. And we would we would only tour usually with, with one at a time. It's hard enough to get one, let alone two. Yeah. Um, but sometimes in LA, sometimes in New York, we'd have two. Um, and that was fun. But I think in terms of the, the financial situation that we have and the same Personnel for as many years yeah. for as many records. I think I, I don't think there's anybody else. You know? Why
1: do you? What do you attribute to the longevity of the all of you sticking together? I mean, I think part of it is what we've just been talking about—the collaborative nature and the, you know,
2: the sharing. Well, I, th- I think there's a couple of things. One technical uh, part of it is. That we all, for uh, somewhat different reasons, decided to settle in L.A. instead of New York. Mm -hmm. And for each of us, we could have made that other choice. Right. The L.A. jazz community is very different um, than the New York. Um, I have to say... How... How so? Well, okay, and, and I'm gonna preface this by saying something that, because of what we talked about before, mm-hmm. I am quite honestly talking about uh, the white LA jazz community or the white dominated that was connected to this movie studios. Mm-hmm. So for example, when I first moved to LA and there were, there were a few black musicians that were connected to the studios. Ray Brown was connected to the studios. Um, you know, there's, there, um, John Clayton does a bunch of studio work there. There's, there's some, but then there's the whole like Kamasi, Washington, Flying Lotus. There's a whole scene in South Central, uh, mm-hmm. on Degnan Avenue, uh, world stage where I'm going to be doing a, uh, uh, webcast and, um, a stream in, in a couple of weeks. Mm, um, so there, there, there was, or there, there is a whole scene of, uh, um, uh, black poetry, jazz, and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. and that scene, sadly, has traditionally been more separated from the mainstream um, jazz scene here. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of those guys are now huge, huge stars in the in the international jazz scene. But um, all of that said, because that's that's a thing for sure. Yeah. When I moved to L. A. The first few people I met were people like Jack Sheldon, who was a great comedian, trumpet player, and he, you know, was uh, the band leader on the Merv Griffin show, and did a bunch of movies, and was kind of a Hollywood fixture in his way. Mm-hmm. And we was very, very big pals with Clint Eastwood, and and a bunch of people. You know, the, the jazz scene has always been like there's four people in Hollywood who give a crap about what we right. do and we know who they are because we see them, you know, at jazz clubs in LA, we see them at events. So, you know, there's just always just like a few a handful, of them, but, yeah. but Clint, Clint was always one of them. But so what happened is you had a whole bunch of musicians that, that lived in um, Los Angeles that came here for studio work all the way back to you know when movies first started out, um, and there's always been this very very deep bench of great jazz players who just decided they didn't want to be on the road anymore. They were great classical and studio players. They could read anything. Mm-hmm. They could you know they were they were uh, highly skilled in terms of sight reading and, and that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and they got connected to the studios, but they, were, they remained really first rate jazz players. And so when I came here, I realized there's all these young jazz players. I mean, young, at that time I was like 30 yeah. and the guys in my band were not much older than me and they, they were um, here too. And they were doing a little studio stuff and playing in different bands. And so Ray and Christian, Christian had had been living in Boston, as had I, because we both were at, at Berkeley. He was teaching there. I was a student there for a minute.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: he started as a student, but they hired him as a teacher in about a sneeze, <laughs> and um, and then he went on the road with Gary Burton and whatever. So, uh, but he made the choice to move to LA rather than moving to New York. And I, with me, it was kind of a fluke, but but it was a happy fluke because once I got here, I realized how how much easier it was to get into the jazz scene because there weren't that many serious jazz singers. There were a lot of serious jazz instrumentalists, mm-hmm. a lot, um, but not a lot of serious jazz singers. And the difference between LA and New York is that in New York and in LA, there's not a lot of money in jazz. Yeah. You know, We're not in it for the money. <laughs> but in New York, there's a lot of prestige. In LA, there's not even prestige. Nobody gives a rat's honey. <laughs> No, I mean, no no one cares. If you say you're in New York and you're doing, uh, you know, a week at Birdland or the Blue Note or whatever it is, people are like, wow, that's cool. I'm doing a week at Catalina. Who cares? (laughs) No one will come. No one cares. No one likes you. No one has heard of you. No one knows who you are. Mm. You are a jazz musician. Who the hell knows who you are? Nobody. I mean, Wayne Shorter can go to the you know the grocery store here and no, no one knows who he is him, i'm sure yeah. so so but that created mm-hmm. a community of players that were so pure in terms of just wanting to do the music mm-hmm. they'd be on film uh they'd be in, in film scoring stages all day you know playing music some of it really good some of it not so good and I'd call them up to come and sit in on some little gig I was doing. And they, you know, there'd be like four top rate horn players that would come mm. to sit in just for fun. You know, Jack or, um, you know, it could be anybody. It's just like Pete Chrisley. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's just some there's just some players out here yep. that are just as good as anybody, but they're never going to be on the Downbeat Critics Poll. <laughs> they, they're, they're just not known and they've never worked towards getting known in that way yeah but there's a whole crop of them here so i think being part of this community if christian and ray and trey and kevin had decided to move to new york i don't think the tierney sutton band would have formed and i don't think it would have been able to stay together because they would be in demand everybody would be calling them to go out on the road as it is they, they all are called to go out on the road a lot yeah. anyway but um, I was able to um, form the band and then have enough work and enough success and enough investment from them that it was a priority and you know but that has that has a lot to do with the culture and what's here yeah as opposed to what's in need. You.
1: Sure. You've been nominated nine, nine times for a Grammy. Yeah. Does it, does it sting that you never, that you haven't won a Grammy?
2: <laughs> I got, I gotta say that not even a little. <laughs> no, not okay. even a little. It's, I mean, it just not even a little. I, I've never under really understood that. I guess that's, I guess people, um, uh, you know, I think about that in terms of the the happy happy album <laughs> concept. You know, like we're supposed to be happy. The the other American thing is like, you know, you got to be the best. You got be gotta to win. Like, okay, so for for nine for not for nine times, uh, my peers voted me one of the five best at something. Right. Like, how cool <laughs> is that? And it's a totally subjective thing. Right. Okay? It's so a totally, like there, there, there can't be a five best of this thing either. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's patently ridiculous right. on the face of it. And I know, you know, lots of people that have never been nominated that do unbelievable yeah. work. So it's all, so first of all, it's subjective. Second of all, it's so lovely and wonderful to have that happen once, Right. okay? Yeah. Um, and just how nice, how lovely. And then when you don't get chosen the very one best, everybody thinks you're going to be depressed and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, what, what is the matter with you? I don't know what kind of life you lead, but for me, Uh, this is science fiction. I grew up in Milwaukee. I didn't start doing this really seriously until I was 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, how cool is yeah. it? It's great. It's really great. And um, so, I, I just can honestly tell you, <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. truthfulness is the foundation of all human work. I have never been been disappointed. Oh, that's never. Awesome. I and it's always somebody that I respect. Okay, Cecile mclaurin Salvant won. Oh, poor me. <laughs> I mean, poor me. How unjust! How horrible! Uh, what was the last time it was? Um, it was uh, Esperanza's Esperanza
1: Spalding. Sp- oh, yeah.
2: I mean, she's a fraud. <laughs> she's no good. She's got nothing to say. It should be me. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I don't have it in me. It's just really patently ridiculous. So no, yeah. it's lovely and I'm really grateful. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. What was it like? So I know that Al Giro was is one of your heroes. Um, yeah. What was it like to, to work with a... Someone, uh, someone that you looked up to so much.
2: Wow, you you really did your your research, Steve. That's <laughs> really nice of you to like like know all this nonsense because you know a lot of times you do these things and
1: people don't know anything about. And <laughs> I try to do my yeah, homework.
2: You, well, wow, I really appreciate it because boy, I've done done a few of these, and I'm sure all the musicians that you you interview have done a few of these, yeah. and you're like, um, yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, uh, that was a really, really cool and wonderful, wonderful thing, obviously. Mm. Um, One of my earliest memories of moving to LA and starting to do gigs. And uh, I remember one night after a, a gig you know, somewhere, some dive in LA, Mm -hmm. because that's just all there is with no prestige. (laughs) But, but I was happy as a clam. I was so happy. I was so (laughs) happy. I was working with musicians that that were as good as anybody I'd ever heard. I was doing these little gigs and making like nothing. And it was just heaven on earth for me. Mm. And I remember we went to Jerry's Deli, which was Oh, on Ventura Boulevard, there's a couple of them on Ventura yeah. Boulevard, one of them closed, but I think one of them still open. And it was one o'clock in the morning, so it was the only place we could go. So we went in there. This was, I think about 1994 or five. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting in Jerry's and it's one or two o'clock in the morning and I watch Al Giroux walk in. Mm. And I scream across Jerry's Deli, you're my hero! <laughs> <laughs> and he just looked at me like I was out of, out of my mind and gave me a thumbs up and, you know, went to his table or whatever. <laughs> and then many, many years later, I was doing um, something, this is maybe 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. uh, I was asked to do some kind of benefit... That was at Vibrato, which is the club that Herb Albert owns okay. in in Beverly Hills, which is very, very beautiful. No, no prestige to play there either, but it's but very it's beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> no one gives a shit. No one gives a shit either. No, this is L.A. No one cares, but it is a beautiful club with a beautiful piano, and and Herb is super gracious to the musicians mm. and always tries to make sure everything is is really nice. It's not a dive. That's yeah. that's just what I wanted okay. to say. And there was this big fundraiser, and I don't remember what it was for. It might have been for the uh, the Monk Institute when it was still called the Monk Institute. Before it now it's Herbie be. Hancock, Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And at the event, you know, Herbie was there, Quincy Jones was there, Keb Moe was there. It was all these people there. And I was asked to sing a song with, um, with Hubert Laws. Um, George Duke was there. Mm. It was just quite the star-studded thing, and so I remember, you know, there was a lot of really, um, you know, virtuosic stuff going on. Obviously, mm-hmm. and and Al Jarreau saying, uh, I think with George Duke, I think he's saying, take five or something. Yeah. you know, it was it was awesome. And so Hubert and I did Skylark. I remember. I think we just did we just did you know like Skylark two choruses. Yeah. Be done. <laughs> And I got a text from Hubert the next week saying, Al Giro, uh really thinks you can sing or something like that. And, you know, so I was like, I, I die happy. Right. I'm going to die now because I have a text from Hubert Laws that told me that Al Giro thinks I can sing. So fast forward maybe six months. No, no, fast forward a couple of years, I guess this must have been. Because mm-hmm. let's see, that was, because that was... And it might have been after that. It might have been six months after that, but whatever. That's where I first met him. And then around 2011, 2012, I got a Facebook message. This is why I don't leave Facebook. If you end up getting to sing on a record with Al Giro because of Facebook, you never leave. Ray. You say, whatever it is, I have to tolerate it. I will. I can't, I can't go. <laughs> uh, it just is what it is. So... Um, uh, So I got a message on Facebook from uh, a guy who was Al's road manager, and he said, oh, Al Jarreau wants to know if you would be willing to sing a duet with him on his new album. Of course, I said, no. Are you kidding me? Al could not (laughs) pay pay me enough money. Yeah, so I wrote back and said, of of course. And it was a kind of thing where, um, I guess they had asked Nora Jones, but she was too busy and too famous. (laughs) I'm perfectly happy to get... Nora Jones or anybody else's sloppy seconds, my friends. <laughs> I just want you to know, I am so all about Great. it. Okay. So anyway, so I went over and and met Al and and uh, saw the song and 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 whatever. And for and and what I said was, I was working on the Joni record by yep. this point. And I said, you don't have to pay me. What I want is for Al to sing one song on my Joni Mitchell tribute record. And he said, sure. Yeah, that sounds like a fair deal to me. <laughs> well, his record didn't end up happening for whatever oh, reason. Wow. And so I got Al Jarreau to sing on mine for free. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to say yes then. And so that, but but that was really, really special. And everything around it was really special. I mean, finding the song, which I think was the perfect song, um, it's called Be Cool. Mm. And it's one that not very many people know. and. Um, but it's a cool song, and it was so perfect for him. Um, you know, it, I still recommend to students an album that was recommended to me in about 1986 uh, that Al recorded, uh, called. Um, he recorded it in about 1963, 64. It's called "The Ma- The Masquerade Is Over." And he's got a couple of tracks, the ma- and it's all straight ahead jazz with a trio, with an out-of-tune <laughs> piano. Not terribly well recorded, but he sounds phenomenal. Mm. And it's like just live swinging recordings with this little trio. And um, he sings, The Masquerade Is Over and Sleep in B, and those records taught me to feel swing. Mm. So I, w- when I first met him, I think when when we went to the sound check for this event, I said, if I can't swing, it's your fault because I basically just studied, <laughs> y- you know, in minute detail where you put your words over the band's vibe. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, you know, that's so, because it's really, it's really just a lesson and I still um, refer, refer people to that. Yeah, he, he was very special and a, a super big influence. So for me... I'm so grateful that, uh, that that was able to happen because yeah. he wasn't around too long.
1: After yeah. That. Was it, was there any moment of like, okay, I got to get over my starstruckness and get down to making music or was it just like, oh, he's a person you know, like me and we're just going to make music together.
2: <laughs> well, he was so cute because we had this, one of the conversations we had was about, uh, I, I said, I said, oh, so you're from Milwaukee, because he, he's from <laughs> Milwaukee, right? I said, oh, so you're from Milwaukee. And so he, he started to talk like, like that. Oh, yeah, I sure am. And I said, you know, Al, I thought that uh, there was something that protected black folks from having this accent. Because, you know, most of the people I know, and he says, oh, no, my brother talks just like that. <laughs> so and so and on the recording people will listen that he does this little improv where he says she's from milwaukee <laughs> he, he sings that in one of the improv That's things so, so it so there was you know he was um so joyful mm. and gracious and it was really cool because the song was new for him too yeah. you know i mean and so uh, and he was totally um cool uh you know about just oh doing another take and you know we just we just did did a bunch of takes and and had fun but it was it was such a cool thing it was such a such a cool day hubert was there and their old friends Mm. uh hubert and and al and um see them seeing each other and and that was one of those things of like wow take care of yourself and i i'm not sure i think i don't know I don't know what eventually killed Al, but I think he was a, I I don't, you know, he's the same age as Hubert and Hubert was in such dramatically better shape Hmm. um, than, than Al and Hubert plays tennis all the time and um, is just really physically active and eats really super healthy food. Um, So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but, but it's really, it's really interesting as I get older and I see my my older friends and I—you really do notice yeah. the the uh, lifestyle catching up. And i do don't—I don't know that 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 Al. Sure. You know, I don't know what what his what his thing was, but I know that he was he was already pretty feeble, and he was having a lot of trouble with his mm. knees and hips and everything. Yeah. So, but uh, that was yeah, yeah definitely career I highlight. Bet.
1: And from her album American Road, here's Tierney singing. On Broadway.
2: Bright on Broadway. They say there's always magic in the air. But when you're walking, They, the men, I'll treat you fine on Broadway. L- 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 l-
0: Looking
2: at them just gives me the blues. How you're gonna?
1: Have you been contacted by, like when you did these, these albums, like the Sting album, for example, did you, did did you hear from Sting afterwards or anything? I'm just curious.
2: No. And I have to say I'm a little irked (laughs) because I handed him the CD in his hand and somebody else did the same night when he was here doing the last ship. And, um, I don't know if he didn't listen to it, you know? Yeah. I have so much. I have so much confidence in in what what the band does, yeah. and in in um, you know Trey's arrangements. I didn't do those arrangements, but those arrangements are they cool. are very cool. so. I I don't really believe like he might he might think I'm the most annoying singer he's ever heard, and he wants nothing to do with me. But come on, Sting, those arrangements are killer. Come on do you hear that piano solo? Come on. So there's a part of me that just thinks he just didn't listen to it. I mean, I know I, I, you know, when, when people are that like uber, uber famous, I mean, I know this from hanging around with, with Clint Eastwood and certain people that, that are like stupid famous, but you kind of know pretty well, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. There's a certain level yeah, of shame yeah. where you may forget forget it. But um, and I don't know Clint super well, but I you know I spent the night you know at his place. Right. And not and in it, it. I'm very good friends with right. his
1: girlfriend. So, right. yeah,
2: so just no, I, I, when I say spent the night, not with right. him, but anyway, you were a guest. But um, this. yeah, I was, yeah, was a guest in his home, and you know, and I know him, but it, there is a sort of um. There's an energy around people that are that famous. Mm. And it's like, you just don't even know. And for Joni, I don't know. I think people had told her about it. And I'm I'm afraid of <laughs> Joni because I know how discriminating she is. Um, but I think some of the stuff on that I'm really proud of, yeah. too. So, you know, but it is kind of, it's almost funny to me that like, no, they haven't. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they
1: don't just care. Just curious.
2: The, the world yeah. keeps me humble. Um, does a great job. Yeah
1: are there any of your um, any of your uh, influences legends I know Bob McFerrin Ulysses, is another big influence have you met him and worked with him ever or
2: I've never worked with him I've met him but he wouldn't remember it I've just met him in passing sure. and you know I'm I'm close with um, uh, uh, with some of the, the great singers that have been part of voicestra and and um, uh, janice yeah Siegel and you know and 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 i was a little bit of a groupie to to voice Istra shows for a while <laughs> um yeah now i mean he's 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 really extraordinary yeah um but you know there's just there's just so many um there's so many great great people it's great yeah artists that's true
1: know. are you still t- are you teaching anymore are you still teaching at all
2: I'm, st- I'm still teaching. I'm teaching privately and I've, my, my thing that I've been doing more of now is producing, which I really love. Mm. I love doing vocal producing. So, you know, working with pro professional singers, my first gig that showed me how much I loved vocal producing was um, I was hired by Sony to be vocal producer on a wonderful project in paris now and that that worked really well for me got to go visit my husband for free (laughs) um and um it was for a a great opera singer named natalie Dessay. all right who is the sort of premier um soprano of her generation i mean i don't i I don't think anybody touches right. her, to me. It, I mean, just there's just something about the way that, that she she sings and sang. She's retired from the opera, but she decided that she wanted to do more great American song. And she's an actress. She's doing theater. She's, she always wanted to be an actress. She wasn't really about being mm-hmm. a singer. But she started this relationship playing with Michelle Legrand at the end of his life. And Michelle had written with Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who are my nearest and dearest, um, a song cycle about the life cycle of a woman. And they wrote it for Barbara Streisand in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And it starts with birth and it ends with death. And then it has all these sort of like life events in mm-hmm. between. And Barbara was too, um, she didn't want to record birth or death. She was too superstitious. She didn't think it was good luck. Oh, wow. And Michelle said, well, I don't want anybody to do the project without those two songs. And so Michelle asked Natalie And Natalie and I had already sort of become friends through Michelle coming to hear the band in in Paris and stuff. And I had produced a couple of other uh, vocals for her on American Songbook stuff that she did. She's done some really, really nice Mm. work in American Songbook stuff. Um, And so I went went over to... um, First to the UK, to Air Sound, where the orchestra was recorded, and we recorded 14 songs with... You know, 90-piece symphony mm. orchestra, Michelle conducting. It was the last big project that Michelle ever did, um, and it's it's really wonderful. And then I I was the vocal producer uh, for Natalie, and um, you know, just helping with with um, uh, English as a second language, uh, and she's she's phenomenal. But you know, some words are yes. weird. And <laughs> Alan and Marilyn, Alan and Marilyn write very. In a very literary style, they're they're not afraid to use a word that's a little unusual if it's the right, right. word, um, and so. Um, but you know, figuring out how how the things are supposed to be read, or watching for any you know, issues of intonation or whatever, all of that stuff, um, just making sure that the vocal is the best thing in the world, and so then I've had the, the opportunity to do that on a couple of records, and I just love to do it. I thought that the only reason I loved it it was because it was Natalie and because it was Alan and Marilyn and I got to sit with them and analyze the songs and figure out how they wanted them read and all of this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But, you know, I've done it with people that were not at that level and I still just really, really love doing that. So I've I've concentrated on that. Mm-hmm. And so even when I teach private students, which I have a bunch of them I always think usually the, the people I'm working with are kind of working pros, usually, most of my students. And so when someone's at that level, I, I like to think, okay, I'm thinking we're making a record. So when you talk about what you want to do to arrange, all right, so let's just imagine you're doing a record. Mm-hmm. How does this arrangement fit into the record? How is it going to serve your voice? Where, you know, What, what kind of... Uh, key center do you want what kind of vibe do you want what's the important part of the story of this does it connect to something else on the album this all of these kind of questions which are the same kind of questions that i ask in my own stuff when i'm doing it um and so that's been really fun so when i am teaching it's kind of productiony although sometimes i'll just dig in and you know get into musicianship stuff and vocal stuff but i love to think about like okay let's produce a record for you right
1: what about that? Everybody yeah. Know? What about that vocal production um, lights you up? Like, what? What about it is?
2: I think I've spent so much time in the studio myself and made so many records that um, I'm, I'm very comfortable there, and I really like it, um, and 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 am at home. But also, when I hear something and I think. If this just were two clicks slowed down, and in three four instead of four four, what would that sound like? And then having it totally light up that mm. person and light up the 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 um, the uh, performance, you know, and and technical things too, you know, like okay, if you think of an E behind that that A, when you hit that B flat and bar four that you have to hold, you, and, and get it in your face, it's gonna, you're gonna center the mm-hmm. pitch. You know, just, just technical stuff from, from doing it myself so much and then being able to give somebody something that will, in real time, improve their performance. Wow. It's, it's so satisfying, yeah. it's so satisfying. And when they're like, oh, that really helps, cool. <laughs> And and you and then you just check your little production sheet. Yep, she's got, got that. that. There it is. <laughs> you know, so it's really yeah. fun. It's really satisfying to really feel like you helped somebody, um, mm-hmm. you know, get through uh, a bump sure. in the road.
1: What is what is practicing or preparation look like for you these days when you're getting ready for a recording or a uh, a gig? Like. What what do you do to prepare?
2: That's a that's a really good question, and I have a, a, a sort of weird, <laughs> in, interesting answer. Uh, I have two I have two two answers. Okay. One one is that in terms of preparing for a gig, the biggest thing that I struggle with, and I think a lot of singers are the same, is just remembering all those freaking <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> You know, it's one thing, once you have a, an arrangement and you have a, a, a template for something and, and your muscle memory will tell you where that note is and where the, you know, insert of three, four mm-hmm. is and, and where the retard is and where that weird chord is that you really have to concentrate to make sure that the note is in tune and all the rest of it. But the story and the lyrics are literally a different side of your brain. Yeah. And when you, you know, let's see now, if I'm doing a gig with a band, we're choosing between, I don't know, a hundred and however many, yeah. you know, and some of them have a lot of words and some of them are two songs put together <laughs> and how, what, what was I what was that word? I know this is, I know it's got two syllables, <laughs> you know, but what is, you know, so I spend, um, I do spend a certain amount of time, uh, Literally in bed, if I can't sleep, going over lyrics to songs. And thinking, "Okay, The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me. All summer long, we sang a song as we strolled on golden sand. Two sweethearts and the summer wind. Like painted kites, those days and nights went flying by. The world was new beneath the blue umbrella sky. Then softer than a piper man. One day it called. he called to you. I lost you to the summer wind. But this is the best one. The best one is the last one. And I might have screwed up a word <laughs> here and there. But I'm pretty close, at least in the internal rhymes. Uh, the autumn wind. The winter wind has come and gone, but still the days, those lonely days, go on and on. But guess who sighs, his lullabies through nights that never end? My fickle friend, the summer wind. What a verse! Right. <laughs> Johnny Mercer, killer. Yeah. So, um, you know, I learned that one because we were putting the Mercer show together, and Alan Bergman said... You know, you really ought to do Summer Wind. That's such a beautiful lyric. And because, you know, Sinatra sings the, the summer, right. you don't hear how beautiful right. and how touching those lyrics right, are. Because he does it so and cool. guess who sighs. <laughs> right. And guess who sighs his lullabies through nights that never end, my fickle friend the summer wind how beautiful (laughs) is that and how perfectly crafted every every word goes right where it goes and so i spend a lot of time going over those things in my head and then the second answer which is exactly the opposite like that's a very intuitive like okay i just can't sleep so i'm going to try to remember all of the summer wind and get it in there um the other thing is i'm preparing right now to do a, a jazz mass oh wow a jazz, a jazz mass, and it's me and Kurt Elling, and it's mm. been commissioned. It's been commissioned by a guy who is celebrating a 50th wedding anniversary, and he, they're doing a, 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 like a recommitment, like a, 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 a silver anniversary. It's, 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 I think it's almost gonna be like a, a second wedding mm. for them. I, I don't know exactly, it, or a recommitment ceremony or something, and it's a mass. Yeah. And it's all in Latin. Wow, and so I'm learning this new music that's been commissioned. That's going to be with big band, organ, and choir, and Kurt, and trying to learn the the um, the Latin. Sure. Okay, so you got to learn the Latin, and I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to actually record me singing over like my, I have, I have the sheet music and then I have, um, you know, synth demos Mm -hmm. of what the basic form of the thing is. And I think I'm going to actually go through the process of recording the vocals on those so that I can, I can, uh, do it and then passively listen Mm -hmm. to try to absorb, to absorb it because, you know, I just want to have it in my bones. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, practicing is tricky, I think, especially in a jazz context. So, so it's, it's have the song as part of your DNA, so then it can go on an adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not thinking about, oh, I don't remember what the bridge right. is, you know. Um, um, and in terms of, you know, like performance chops, you know, I don't know. It's like I've just got to keep, I got to keep forcing myself to be in positions where I'm going to be performing because any performer will tell you that it's just so different than, than yeah. practicing. So you got to do your due diligence and then you got to force yourself to be in front of a bunch of people and, yeah. and do it. So I, I probably will make some videos, um, you know, that I basically record live and. Sure. Throw them out yeah. there, so
1: do you sing every day? do you do you practice daily or?
2: I don't. So if God wants to smite me, <laughs> um, I'm just curious. I don't. Yeah, no. I mean, maybe I do, actually, <laughs> because i I literally do sing in the shower, and so, Um, And a big part of my process in in getting a little seed for an arrangement is just obsessing about Mm. a tune and singing it to myself. Um, So I think I do this so much just in my daily life that probably at some point in every day I'm doing it. But I don't consciously do it every day. Right.
1: Do you listen to a lot of music? Are you a big consumer of music?
2: I... Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. It depends on where I am mm-hmm. in my process. When I was in Paris, I, I went through this this stage where I just, I just wanted to listen to um, uh, Stevie Wonder oh. Music Aquarium. That's just all I <laughs> wanted to listen to. And I almost just wanted to listen to Boogie on Reggae Woman <laughs> on repeat. That's just kind of all I wanted to hear. So I go through these kind of mm-hmm. weird uh, phases. Yeah. And so it depends sometimes, um, and I also find that um, I, like, I like to walk and I like to, um, I, I, well, like is a strong word, but I, I try to do like see, 45 minutes to an hour on the treadmill on an incline to like really get things, and I find that it really gets my my brain going and I often get little bits of an idea for an arrangement or sing something or a little lyric piece or something and so there's 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 definitely a physical Mm -hmm. a component for me of needing to warm up there's a physical thing that needs to happen
1: do you jot those ideas down when you get them or record them or
2: I put them in my, I record them, put them on notes, put them in the phone. I've got like so many of them and I never do anything with them. So maybe, so during the pandemic, I was supposed to flesh all those <laughs> things out. And did I? No. So.
1: Mm, yeah. I don't know. What are you most looking forward to in the in the next several months?
2: What am I most, well, you know, I'm just thinking of the experiences of the last week where I've had, I've gone to a show Mm -hmm. um, and I've done a show. And when I went to do the show uh, with Tamir, it was just a pretty heavenly situation. Mm. It was a beautiful piano. It was a beautiful venue. um, My flight was easy. I arrived at nine o'clock in the morning, and musicians will relate to this, and my hotel room was ready, <laughs> so I could just rest. Everything was wonderful. So I'm looking forward to just being able to be in the middle of this music in a in a performance space, because it, it, there's nothing that's the same as that. Um, and I'm also just looking forward to be, being in the same room as my music community, you know, just like at, at, at the show the other night at Feinstein's show, um, uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. were there and Frida Payne was there and just seeing people in the community mm. where you just say, what are you doing? And, you know, and just uh, um, seeing um, the musicians in the band, you know, just... Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, just being in the same room with those people that are my my family and have been my my just warm, wonderful comrades for so many years.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Tierney, thank you so very much for spending time with me today. Um truly a joy to talk to you and uh quite an honor for me
2: well thank you you're you're very very kind and and uh, i really appreciate um uh what you're up to because it's really nice it's really really nice so it's it's my honor mm. for sure hey
1: everyone just a couple of things before you head on your way first of all thanks again for listening So appreciate you as an audience. And if you enjoy the show, please tell a friend. It's a goal of mine to grow the audience and get the exposure these musicians deserve. So please tell somebody, point them to the website, point them to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'd love to grow the audience and give these artists the attention they so deserve. Speaking of the website, head on over there, theplayfulmusician.com. You can hear all past shows and see show notes from this show as well as all the other shows. I hope you're enjoying this summer. Things are starting to heat up and we've got a great lineup on the way for the next few months. So stick around and leave a review. If you're if you enjoying the show, it would be great to get more reviews up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, everybody, take good care, and we'll see you real soon.